Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman. Sorry, no music for the moment. And if you hear a little pain in my voice during this introduction, you're also probably feeling the loss of Anthony Bourdain. Didn't know him well, only met him a couple of times. But his books and his shows made me feel like he was a close friend. I have a sense a lot of people have that sentiment. Like a lot of people, I watched replays of his shows over the weekend looking for clues as to why he would take his own life. Every time the title came up, it felt like I was shaking my head. Parts unknown. Yeah, there are parts unknown to all of us about this. So many layers of sadness. When I tried to get to the bottom of them all, I stopped at the place of storytelling. Tony was a wonderful storyteller, and generally, storytelling is based on vulnerability. So why couldn't he have turned whatever vulnerability he was feeling in his final moments into a story that we all could have been moved by or learned from? You know, there's a story about the last words of the Irish writer and humorist Oscar Wilde. It's probably not true, but if it didn't happen, it should have. They say that his last words were, This wallpaper is terrible. One of us will have to go. And he closed his eyes and passed away. Now, that's the kind of ending I look for in a storyteller. In this case, all I get are unanswered questions and the silence of what could have been. That silence actually amplifies the voice of my guest this week. The voice of Nellie Galan is so powerful that I actually tried to undercut it at the start of our conversation with a question about why people do hurtful things to one another. She had no answer. There was none. Just as there is no good answer as to Tony's final decision, all we can do is get the best out of our moments. And that's why it's so appropriate to listen to Nellie this week. You will be stronger and better and wiser and enriched just by listening to her story. Nellie came to the United States with her parents and her brother after Fidel Castro took over Cuba in 1959, family settled in Teaneck, New Jersey. Her father had owned supermarkets and car dealerships in Cuba. In America, he took a job painting cars on an assembly line at Ford Motor Company. Her mom had a college degree. In America, she worked as a seamstress in a factory and did some babysitting on the side to help make ends meet. But it still wasn't easy, and the family had a hard time making ends meet. At age 13, Nellie remembers hearing her mother's voice coming through the bedroom walls, asking her dad how they were going to afford the payments for Nellie's Catholic school. This set her off on an entrepreneurial journey that led to her becoming the first Latina president of Telemundo. She's created more than 700 television shows in Spanish and English and helped launch 10 channels around the world. On top of that, she now travels the globe as the founder of the Adelante movement to empower Latinas. But her message, which comes in her book, Self Made, empowers everybody. Please take advantage of it and do something good with it. 
want to take a moment to thank my sponsors for bringing my voice and Nellie's wisdom to you. You'll hear more about Squarespace and ZipRecruiter in the mid-roll. But let's get straight to my conversation with Nellie Galan. You know what? It's time for a little music. Welcome to Big Questions, Nellie Galan. So happy to be here with you. You're one of my favorite people, and I'm just so excited to have this conversation with you. Just coming to meet you in your home, I think of parties. And it's a very, I'm, I'm going to tell a story in a little while that is kind of get to the question that I hope will get to your essence. But there was a party you threw, and I brought my youngest daughter, Bridget. And my wife and I are out there, and we are dancing. Dancing and dancing. And my daughter had never seen us dancing like that. Never. No. So you got her to see us in a completely new way. Just through the great music and the environment that you had here that made, made me feel like I was a young guy. Well, you know, I'm Latina, and I'm very passionate. And, you know, I don't even throw parties very often either. And I think, you know, sometimes in our day-to-day life, we lose the essence of who we are sometimes in day-to-day life. But that's who I am. And I think when I stop and I have these moments where we get to be who we really are, that's who I am. I'm, I, I reek of passion, and I reek <laughs> of music and, and color. And, you know, this house is very colorful. Getting to who you are is where I want to go. I've got your book, Self-Made, in front of me. And, you know, a lot of times people come on podcasts, they go on TV shows, and they're pitching a book. You're not pitching this book. You gave this, well, I got this book a long time ago. And if you turn through it, you'll see underlying passages, circles around important thoughts, boxes around almost whole pages, and I would like to get to what created this book. But here's the thing, and this is what makes this podcast a little different. I got some advice from a woman, Melanie Whelan, the CEO of SoulCycle. She told me, you got to know your audience, Cal. Now, it shocked me when she said that she saw her competitor or one of her competitors is Netflix. I'm thinking Soul Cycle Netflix. And when you think about it, as she explained it, yeah, if people are sitting at home watching something great on Netflix, they can't be at Soul Cycle. And so she said, you got to know where your audience is listening to you. You got to know who these people are. So I started to ask. And one of the things that came back was half the people wanted me to tell stories. The other half wanted takeaways from the guests. And so I thought this is a great way to combine these two in the same episode. So I'm going to tell you a story about a Latina. And then at the end of it, it's going to hook into the question that I hope gets at who you are. Okay? So my youngest daughter, Bridget, turned 16 years old. 
and she gets her driver's license. It was kind of time for a new car for my wife, so got a new car that she and my wife can share. All is good. My wife goes to work out and stops in the bathroom to wash up, leaves the key on the bathroom counter, goes to the bikes, and she is cycling. Goes back to the bathroom to wash up and remembers, oh, where's my key? And it's gone. Gone. She's looking in all over the bathroom, through the garbage cans, opening lockers. Oh, you're, if everybody could see your face. That's says, happened. <laughs> it's happened. <laughs> Going through the whole, cannot find the key. Goes to the front desk. Does anybody return the key? No. Key is a very important word here. I'm going to twist it in a second when it comes to you. Can't find the key. So Bridget has the other key. So my wife calls up Bridget. Can you come pick me up? The key's lost. Now Bridget, young Latina, 16 years old, has spent years watching the forensic files on TV. <laughs> she comes in and says to the person behind the desk, well, surely you have some videotape. I, I want to see the videotape. You, you can't see the videotape. <laughs> now, I wasn't there, so I didn't get the conversation, but I know Bridget. And I know this expression that said, look, we can do this the hard way or the easy way because the police can come here and you can show them the footage or That's right. you can just show it to me. And they take her back to see the footage. So they're looking at a spot in the bathroom and 45 minutes goes by. And during this time, an old woman passes or an elderly woman passes on the tape. And the person who was operating a video stopped and, and rewound it to look at the person. Didn't say anything to anybody. And Bridget notices this, doesn't say anything. 45 minutes passes, there's no sign of a key or anybody taking a key. And my wife thinks, okay, it's gone. We'll have to get a new one made and is about to leave. And Bridget says, never leave the body without the evidence. And stands in front of the bathroom, instructs my wife to go in and look again through the bathroom. And everybody who's entering, Bridget is now interviewing. When was the last time you were in this bathroom? Did you see anybody suspicious? No, that is hysterical. <laughs> and is, this is going on. Meanwhile, when my wife's going through the bathroom again and again, can't find anything. And my daughter just stays at it, stays at it, stays at it. More and more people are coming through. Now everybody in the gym now knows there's this missing key. And after about 25 minutes, a woman comes over and says, are you missing a key? Yes, we are. She says, way outside, on the other side of this building, there is a security guard who's got a missing key. They go out to talk to the security guard and he's waiting with the key. And so, and this is what's gonna get to where we're gonna go here. 
My wife says, did a woman give this to you? Because she's thinking the key's in the woman's bathroom. How else could it get to this guy? And the security guard said, no, a man gave it to me. And she says, what? And he said, yeah. He saw an older woman walking outside, put something in a, like a white napkin, and then drop it in the trash. And when it hit the trash can, it made a, like a loud clank. And so this guy looked in as soon as the woman passed, pulled it out, and there was the key. And he gave it to the security guard. Now, this leads to two questions. The second one goes, I think, straight to the heart of this book. But the first is, why would anybody do something that mean? That's why do you think? I don't know. It boggles my mind. Unless they're not well in the head or unless they, I don't know, unless they think, I don't know. Because the reason I asked the question is when I look at your book, Self-Made, if, if that story is the yang, that meanness, that wanting to knock somebody down for no reason, you are the yin. Because this book, and it seems like everything you do in your life now is designed to giving people the keys to their own success. And I, I want to know in this time that we have, what was it that got you to that point where you're basically committing and devoting your life to lifting up so many people to get the most out of their lives? First of all, thank you for saying that. I, I, I don't know if I've even thought of it quite the way you're saying it. I think for me, though, I'm an immigrant. And I think that it has been a journey to get to the place where I feel like by osmosis, working in Hollywood and working for and having as clients a lot of billionaires, where I would be around them and I would say, and I would go, oh my God, they're not smarter than me. They just know some secret sauces of how the system in this country works. They know that, you know, when Donald Trump says, I don't pay tax, you know, everybody cannot pay tax if they know the system and how it works. Uh, they know how to purchase buildings. They know how to make money while they sleep. And I, and I guess being around a lot of these people and, and realizing, wow, I could do that too. And realizing that I was never taught that stuff, that my parents are such smart, wonderful people, but they came here as immigrants and really didn't know how the system worked. And seeing so many women, so many black people, Asian people, Middle Eastern people, people around me that I thought were smarter than some of these people that I worked for, and yet were living beneath their potential. And I think after so many years of that, and then finally taking time off to go back to school, I think the key to my, my whole thing, Cal, is that I went back to school and I had time to look at the world from, you know, from above. I had, I had made enough money to take time off and then realized, oh my God, like, and then also I had joined this Coca-Cola marketing board and I realized in that board that multicultural women were the secret sauce to the economy according to advertisers and to 
uh, Fortune 500s. And I was like, we're that big of a deal and we don't know it? And we have so much power and we don't know it? And they would say to me, if all those women knew the power they had and knew how to use their power, they w- th- their entire you know communities would change. And I think something went off inside of me. And, and again, seeing how Jewish people in, in Hollywood really were making a difference once they made money, seeing that once they made money, they could give back to their communities. You know, all of those things together, finally, and having the time to think about it. I just thought, oh my God, if I could do one thing before I die. What would that thing be? It, it would be to bring the information that I already have to the people that I really care about. And if, if I could only change, you know, one person, you know, I, I have an African-American mentor who is the largest station owner who's, who's black. And he said, you know, I went to see him when I was having these thoughts in school. And I said, you have made so many black people rich by helping them buy TV stations. And he said, my intention was to make a hundred black men rich. And I said, if I could just have that intention to make a hundred multicultural women rich, I could do this. And so that's the intention. And, and so I really went about it in a very, as I am, you know, I think, I think I'm an, a pinata on the outside and a very <laughs> solid, grounded, I'm Warren Buffett on the inside and a pinata on the outside. <laughs> and the part of me that's Warren Buffett really said, I want to be Susie Orman meets Robert Kiyosaki meets Tony Robbins of financial empowerment and entrepreneurship. And I thought, that's my most authentic. When you peel me all away, that's who I am. I'm not a, pro- I'm a producer, but a million people could be a better producer than me. I've been a TV executive, a million people. But where I am most authentic is that I'm an immigrant that started with nothing that I really congruently every day, step by step, live the life of the millionaire next door. I really do save every penny. I really do invest every penny. I really don't waste money on stupid things. I'm not an ostentatious person. I'm not a grandiose person. But yet, as I said to my, to my mate, you know, when, when he, you know, he took me to a country club, I go, you're impressed by all these people. I can buy and sell most of these people, but I don't brag about it because I've done it in a quiet way, not an ostentatious way. I do it every day. It's a daily practice. And I said, the people that show money are the poorest people. And the people that I know that are the wealthiest people are the people that are the quietest, that do it every day quietly, and then give the money back and change their communities. Those are the people that you have to be impressed with. And that's who I aspire to be. And so that's what I want to do. That's what I wanted to emulate. And that's what I wanted to give back. And it, it, it took a long time to get to the point where I figured that out and where I felt comfortable enough to do it. It's astonishing when I think about it. I was talking, have you ever met Jim Quick? No. Okay. He is a guy who, when he was six years old, uh, he was fascinated with fire trucks. And there was some kind of alarm in the school and every, all the kids went over to the ledge to see the fire trucks. And he was standing on a chair and another kid pulled the chair out. He fell and his head hit a radiator, 
blood gushing all over the place. And after that, he had problems with his brain. Couldn't remember things, couldn't study, couldn't read. And he has gone on to become the ultimate memory coach, speed reading coach. And I'm hearing a little of this sense mm -hmm. from your childhood. I have parents, they didn't understand the system. And so it seems like it must have been incumbent upon you to understand things for them. Is that what well, set I say everything that in the off? Book. I mean, I, there is a whole chapter in my book where I say, in your pain is your brand. And I, I do believe that in life, we ha we can't sit around and like whine about the bad things that have happened to us. I believe they've come to us as a gift. I think that whatever is your pain, you need to look at it, analyze it, take it apart. You're an expert in that pain. So solve it, <laughs> fix it, resolve <laughs> it, make money on it, turn your pain into profit. And I teach that to people. I go, great, you've been raped, you've been, whatever. Tell me the worst thing that's happened to you. I can turn anything into profit because who is a bigger expert in that pain. You can tell me everything that went wrong, what everyone did wrong, everything that was missing. That is Lean Startup 101. That's what they teach in Silicon Valley. What is a problem in your life? Go fix it. So I believe whatever's been given to you, bad or good, I mean, you know, my fir the first half of my life, I, I ran Telemundo and I became Tyler Perry and produced 700 TV shows about Latino families. I have turned my entire childhood into profit, telling stories about what it is to be the kid of immigrants. Now I've entered a whole other set, you know, kind of a bigger brand, which is economics. The economics of being a multicultural person, of being the other, of being an emerging person with no money, being the people with less money when you actually have the most power. And I'm gonna turn that around. How could it be that you have the numbers? How could it be that multicultural people in this country, in China, in India, in Africa, have the numbers and we have the least money? Because we don't know any better. Because we've been brainwashed to think we don't have the power. We, because we don't have the information of how to get the money and the power. How did this information start to come to you? Because like in your book, there's like story after story of something happening to you that's kind of unexpected. Like you're, you're in a Catholic school and you write a paper right. that harkens back to Cuba, your ancestry, and it has a feel of Ernest Hemingway's right. Old Man in the Sea. Yes. And one of the nuns looks at it. Go ahead, finish and the story. And she says, you've plagiarized this story. For, I mean, I guess I should have been complimented. That, but to me, if, if I would have heard that, I'd say, <laughs> sign her up. Uh, I, clearly, she had not read The Old Man in the Sea. <laughs> and she suspends me for three days. Uh, and and I'm like, wow. And I go home and I tell my parents. And my parents, all they can say to me is, go ask for forgiveness. And I'm like, but why? I didn't do anything wrong. I mean, again, the mindset of an immigrant is goody two-shoes. I would never do anything wrong, you know, because we're raised to like not rock the boat, be under the radar. And in my anger, because more angry at my parents for not taking my side, I didn't realize my parents were just beaten down by the whole immigration thing. Um, I write an article to Seventeen Magazine about why you should never send your kid to all-girl Catholic school because I was so mad at the nun. 
send it in, mail the article in. And three days later, I go back to school and the nun compliments me. She goes, well, no, in fact, you that, it, you were you did not write the old man in the sea, and uh, but your your, We're sorry. Art, your We're story sorry. was really good, and we'll give you an A. And the so whole, now you've already just lambasted the whole school system. Yeah, I've blown the school, but I don't think anything is going to come of it because what are the chances seventeen is going to do anything with that article? But three months later, I get a hundred dollar check in the mail, and they say the article is going to come out, and now I now what freak do you out. Fit with? Because now I know this is going to be a disaster. And if it was in today's world, it would have been even worse with social media and all that. It comes out and my my family gets called to the school and my parents are freaking out. Like, why do you do this to us? Why? Why are you? This is terrible. My parents think we're going to be deported or something. You know, you can't. I, I, I didn't understand it then. But now as a grown up, I realize I put my parents through hell. You know, just that fear the fear that's still alive today of being an immigrant. We go back to the school and um, no, before that happens, uh, you know, I won't know. I go to the school first that, that first day and the nun says to me, we don't like your kind here. And I have to go home and tell my parents I've gotten expelled from the school and my parents are freaking out. And I get mad again at my parents for again, taking the side of the nuns. And I call the Board of Ed of the state of New Jersey and an African-American man answers the phone. And I've always had such an incredible relationship with black people in America because black people in America have always been more empowered than my Latino family. And, And for some reason, they always show up at the right moment to guide me. And the guy's like, I go, can they get away with this? And he goes, I feel so bad that that nun did that to you, but yes, they can because it's a private school. But let's go to the local newspaper, oh, and 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 man. again, they, you know, I got, I went with it, you know. <laughs> and the next day it comes out, you know, they interview me, and the next day it comes out, Cuban girl gets expelled for First Amendment, and my parents lose it. Why are you doing this? <laughs> and the nuns call us back in, and can you imagine the car ride with my parents freaking out um, to go see the nun? And my parents, I don't even know what they thought. Like we were going to get murdered. I don't know what. And we go to the school and the nun is like, happy-go-lucky. Like, oh, we never said that we were expelling you. In fact, you're such a good student. You're an AP student. We're going to graduate you a year and a half early. (laughs) And my parents are like, this is good, right? I go, yeah, it's great. It like went right over my parents' head. But I lucked out because it changed my life. Seventeen Magazine, when I got home, we had voicemail boxes back then, uh, had left me a message, and they were about to give me the youngest guest editorship in the history of the magazine because they thought it was great that I was fighting the system. And I learned a lot of lessons in that moment that this is a country where people speak up, that my parents were used to a communist regime where you don't speak against the system. They were traumatized. Number two, that you cannot be a wimp that you do have to use the rights of the country. That my parents brought me to this country to use the rights that I was given. That the African-American man was right. That black people were much further ahead than my parents, which is why after that point, I did follow Jews and African-Americans. I realized that they were much further ahead than we were. And it's, these are like, you know, it's kind of like life is about connecting dots. And those were the first dots. And I think this book is much, you know, many years later where I've connected many more dots. 
But that was the beginning of those dots. And then I think economically, I, my first dots that I connected were also in that Catholic school when my parents couldn't pay for the school. Oh, this is the Avon story? Yeah, and my parents couldn't pay for the school and it was very clear to me that I was also going to get expelled. My big fear of the school was getting expelled. And look, I made it happen. I got, in one way or the other, I got out of that school early. <laughs> Well, no, to set it up, you, you heard your parents my, I talking one night. I overheard them say that, that, they, that they were going through a bad economic period. And my mother would say, what are we going to do? And my father would say, don't worry, Jesus will help us. And I thought, Jesus isn't going to help us when I get called in and they can't pay for the school. They don't get these nuns. They're very, you know. And now I feel bad for the nuns because I saw that movie Novitiate about how the poor <laughs> nuns were treated badly during, during uh, Vatican II. But anyway, so... I decided, you know, a lady down the street, an older Jewish lady said to me, honey, I sell Avon. Do you want to sell Avon and get some free lipstick? And I go, forget the free lipstick. It's got to be 50-50 because I needed to make money. And in the first week I sold Avon out of my locker to the girls in my school and their moms, I made 200 bucks. And by the first month I had wow. made 800 bucks and I was paying down my, my tuition. And... I told the nuns, you got to send a letter home because my dad is very Latino. He's not going to deal with this well. And they sent home a letter. And my parents opened the letter and I goes, what does it say? And my father goes, oh my God, your daughter is a genius and Jesus helped us after all. <laughs> and I learned at that moment, hey, we got to make money. So, you know, I, I knew from the time I was in seventh grade, which is not very, you know, it's very unique for a Latina girl. I knew I wanted to be a millionaire, not a millionaire that needed to buy Louis Vuitton. I never, I never cared about like when you hear young people today, you know, or rappers say, I want to have this kind of car. And that was never it. I wanted freedom from the worries that my parents had. I wanted, you know, th that kind of wealth. And I realized that, that, you know, that is who I've always been. And it's only gotten more so that way because I don't want to see young people. And, and that is one of my goals is having a son, you know, and my son really gets it. You know, I, and you know this from us being in Hollywood, how many celebrities, how many famous producers have we seen get to a certain age who had all the money in the world be broke or not be able to pay the maintenance on their house or whatever? I, I don't want to teach young people that you, you make money and then you blow it all and live a grant. No, I want it to last their lifetime and beyond. And so it isn't about the stuff that we are being bombarded with so that we, we get addicted to stuff. It's not about stuff. It's about education. It's about experiences. It's about being able to really uh, have freedom to, to do great things with your life, to give back to communities, to change the world. That's the kind of stuff I want us all to go after. That's why in the book I say, becoming rich in every way. Because to me, as an ethnic person, to just be wealthy and buy things, that doesn't make you happy. To be rich in love, rich in family, rich in abundance, rich in community, that's rich. So pushing the narrative along, it's a great story you tell which is, it's, it seems like it's another epiphany to you because you ultimately get a job running a television station mm -hmm. in New Jersey. In New Jersey. And you're doing a great job. You're the youngest manager of a TV station anywhere. 
and you're making this thing pop. It was like a failing station that you threw yourself into for years, like three, four years. Yeah. And now everything's going great. And all of a sudden you go in one day and- And they sell it. Um, well, first of all, I have to say that the most important part of that story is that I was, before that, I was like a little reporter, which is very glamorous for a young person. Who doesn't want to be on TV? And I was at CBS as a, like a junior little reporter in Boston. And I meet these two big Hollywood moguls because I got asked to go interview them for a John F. Kennedy special. And they're like, what are you Jewish? What are you? I had a New Jersey Jewish accent. And I go, I'm Latina. And they go, oh, we bought this little rinky dinky station in New Jersey, the first TV station that's Latino. We, we think you should come and work for us. And I'm like, well, why would I want to come and work for you when I'm a little, I'm going to be a big TV reporter at CBS. And they're like, ah, are you kidding me? Are you rich? I go, no, we're rich. So you want to go be a little reporter that works in a factory at CBS, or do you want to be employee number one of what's going to be a multi-billion dollar business? Do you not know the Latino market's going to be big? And I think that's an important part of the story because- I was still thinking like ego, like I'm gonna go be a reporter on TV. Right. And they showed me a bigger vision of a life. So imagine if I was employee one of Google today, what would I be worth? So I was employee one of what is now Telemundo and Univision. That's just, just so we get the idea. Okay, yeah, this is an important this part of important. the setup, right. So I go run what is, I mean, the most rinky dinky. I mean, when I tell you that it was like a 300 square foot little room, in Newark, which at the time was gun-infested city, I needed a bodyguard to get into the building. There were three union engineers and me. I ran this little thing. I, I learned how to make money on it. I, I even got to build a little building in Teterboro, I mean, which was right next to the airplane field where my very wealthy billionaire boss used to fly his plane. So. I was like the rinky, think of it as I was like the rinky dinky little Burger King or McDonald's owner before McDonald's and Burger King was big of a billionaire that had a million other companies and I was employee one. Ran this thing for a number of years to the point where we now had 70 employees and we were, and the business was making $8 million a year profit from nothing and they sold it for $75 million. And I walk into the office and the lawyer from my billionaire boss says, we sold the company for $75 million and we're giving you a car and some money. And I was heartbroken because it was my baby. I barely ever saw them. And I call my boss, which you're never supposed to do. He's like a big deal. You don't call, just call him. I need to see you right away. <laughs> <laughs> and I take my car and I go from New Jersey into Manhattan. He obviously knows what's coming. Well, he's he probably thinks he's probably thinks I'm a little gnat and he's just gonna like snap me off. And I go into his Park Avenue apartment, uh, not apartment uh, office. I go up and I do everything they tell you in business not to do. I'm hysterical crying to the point where his assistant doesn't even stop me because she's like, whatever, she's hysterical. And I walk in and I go, how could you do this to me? This is my baby. You didn't even <laughs> tell me I would have bought it myself. And he's like, young lady, those are my chips. If you think you're so good, go get your own chips. Whoa. And I'm like, what an asshole. 
And I went home. And, Best you know, and, and by the way, this man just passed away a year ago. And you know, and I still say the greatest mentor of my life, the greatest mentor of my life, because I went home. I thought he was an asshole. I cried it out. And then I thought, maybe he's right. A couple days later, when I had time to calm down, I thought, maybe he's right. Maybe I'm thinking too small. He didn't talk down to me like I was a little minority. He could have just said, oh, don't worry. You will, you know, whatever. He didn't, I mean, a lot of people, just to be politically correct, might have said, oh, you know, it's going to be fine. Do you want a job? Do you want me to find you another job? What do you want me to No, he said, go get your own chips. And then I realized, well, maybe he thinks I can't get my own chips. Maybe I can't get my own chips. And I, I, I still think that was the greatest moment of my life because my parents, in their less, less than-ness, being immigrants, couldn't show me a bigger vision for my life. And he not only showed me a bigger vision for my life, he became the role model for a bigger vision of my life. Every single time from that moment on till today, every time I ever got stuck, every time that the immigrant me could not go raise money, would wanna give up, he would come into my mind. And that's why I know that people live forever. Because I would, you know, you know, I started a business right then and there. I said, I'm gonna start a business. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. It, for four years, that business did not take off. I made no money, but I never gave up because I would say the few times I was with him, he would say, when I was your age, I started a business. I didn't make money for 10 years and then I became a millionaire. And I go, well, I'm only on year four. <laughs> and then he'd say, when you go raise money, ask for five times the money, you're gonna run out. Don't be afraid. You gotta ask for money like it's, like they're gonna miss out if they don't give you the money. And so I would never ask for money like it was me, little immigrant from New Jersey. I'd ask, I'd get into his head and I go, well, you know, if you don't do this, someone else is going to do it. The Latin market's going to be huge. You're going to miss out. And it worked. And then slowly his voice would become part of my voice. And I say this a lot in the book. I say, act as if, because I don't think we're born out of the womb with the voice that's gonna get us to where we need to go. I am an introvert. I am a quiet person naturally. In my, you know, if you ask my family, they'll say she's like a hubble. You know, she sits in her room and she reads, you know, and I think people don't realize that to do great things in life, you need split personalities. You know, if you ask people about Obama, Obama's like a, a nerd introvert that can read till three in the morning and then he has to show up and be social. That doesn't mean that the primary personality type is that you're social. My primary personality type is not social or extroverted. I am an analytical, quiet person that can, in small doses, be social, and then I turn into a pumpkin. (laughs) So I think we have to cultivate these split personalities like an actor. That's why I think acting is important for all of us. Taking acting classes is very important. You know, I can be Olivia Pope in doses, in small doses. And then sometimes I can be really Latina and loving and be like very loving to my family and be very authentically Latina and be running Telemundo and really understand the voice of dreamers. And then other times I can be a Jewish girl that's really tough. 
And sometimes I can even be a ghetto black girl and like be in somebody's face. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that's really awesome. And I think it's very useful in life to cultivate voices. Time for a word from our sponsors, and that means Squarespace. Not long ago, I found another reason to recommend Squarespace to you. Now, as many of you know, my own website, calfussman.com, is powered by Squarespace. All you got to do is go to it and see how the photos pop and the messaging is so crisp and clear. Makes me so happy. But a little while back, something else happened that really made me think. I met a guy named Scott Boggins. He's a showrunner. Afterward, I wanted to know a little more about him. So I went on the internet, checked out his website. I'm looking down and seeing all these achievements and accomplishments. Very impressed. Then I get to the bottom of the page and it says, powered by Squarespace. And then I was really impressed. If you need a website, go to squarespace.com, type in the offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, and you'll get 10% off your next domain name or website. Go on, do it, and impress somebody. And ZipRecruiter. A lot of this podcast has been devoted to improving yourself, getting the most out of your moments. And if you need to hire, I can't think of a more efficient and better way to do so than by going to ZipRecruiter. All you got to do is type in your job description and with the single click, you will have qualified candidates in 24 hours. I know the people who started this company. I know the people working at this company. They are passionate about getting the right talent to you. Go to ZipRecruiter.com backslash Fussman and you are going to get a free trial and see exactly what I'm talking about. The higher you make may make your life a lot easier. ZipRecruiter. You know, it's so interesting because you talked about taking the time off way later to go back to school. We're still mm-hmm. in the beginning of the narrative. But I, I, listening to you talk, it makes me think, wow, should I be going back to school to learn all these things that are really going to help me along? Mm-hmm. Bef- before we started the conversation, you were talking about educating your son in accounting. No, I never took an accounting class. Maybe I should. Yeah. I think that we should all be taking classes till we die. I think that we should all admit that we live in times that everything is going really fast. There's no way we can all know everything we need to know. I'm right now, you know, I'm now taking classes in social media right? I am, I, I mean, I'm always taking classes. I think that for me, I feel like it's better to just go, I don't know, than to say, than pretending, like always feeling like, oh my God, I'm going to get caught at work. I'm going to get caught that I don't know. I'm going to, no, let's just admit it. You know, I, I think we should have, right now I have like three young women 
in my Adelante movement teaching me social media. I don't like social media. I'm not good at it. It's not my natural thing. Um, I'm learning coding from really slowly, may I say, from coders that I've had working for me. And I don't think it has to be even a formal school. It could be people that you trade information with. You know, I'm constantly trading. For instance, I have a doctor that is one of my dear friends, Edelson. You know, he's, I'm really learning a lot about the human body and stuff from him. And because, you know, for him, he's like a doctor. Does he really want to have another patient? No. So we're, I'm like, you're going to train me in this and I'm going to, I'm going to help you with your book. And I'm helping him really figure. I think it's also good for friends to trade knowledge. I think it's crazy to think that we all walk through life knowing everything. I don't even like when I meet doctors that act like they know everything. I don't even like it in people. I think that to act like you know everything is an old school way of thinking. None of us know anything. I walk through life like I'm an idiot and I know nothing. (laughs) I, I really do. I feel like that's how we should walk through life. I just went back to school and I got a master's and a doctorate and I'm starting all over again. And by the way, yesterday we were laughing because I'm, I'm going to be the commencement speaker at my, at my old psychology school. And they were asking me what my degree is. And I had to pull the degrees out of the closet. And my assistant goes, how come you don't hang the degrees? I go, because they mean nothing to me. I'm starting all over again. I, don't, I didn't get it for a degree. I got it for knowledge. And now I'm going to start in a whole other area. I think that as we get older, we lose our memory and we lose this because we're not working the muscle of the brain. I want to, I just went to China. I'm interested in Mandarin Chinese. I'm interested in coding. I'm interested in things that I find really boring and challenging. That's what I want to learn because I used to find math boring and challenging and now I love it. You don't know what you love. You don't know if over time, the things you hated younger, you now love. You've got to just open your mind to learning is the greatest thing in the world. That's like the secret sauce of life, learning opening your mind, thinking new things, thinking that everything you knew was wrong. So to me, that's the greatest gift we have. And I think it gets better as you get older. I think older people should be taking acting class. I really do. I'm, I'm going to sign up. I'm going to sign up. I think older people should be taking improv. What is better at all that you don't care what anybody thinks anymore? Tell your most effed up stories. You know, like, just do it. Just say the most crazy shit that you've never had the, the, the guts to say. Say it. I mean, really take chances when you're older. I think old age is the time to really just go for it. Instead of like, you know, I get why people when they're younger, uh, but when you're older, like who the hell are you trying to prove something to now? Do it. Really come to life. You know, you talk about improv and I know that getting on stage and speaking to people is like one of the biggest fears for a lot of people. I mean, they listed like number one and death number three. (laughs) And just taking an improv course really is putting you right in the sights of your biggest fear. Just getting up and having to talk and then putting out people in front of you to, to watch. And I don't know why I didn't do this like 30 years ago. It would have been so helpful to me. But it's never too late. No. And that, that's, I'm going to do that too. Well, I will tell you this. You know, I had a relationship for many years with a comedian. And I love comedians. I have like a, a, a thing with comedians, unfortunately for me. Uh, because, you know, comedians are complicated people. 
Uh, and I remember, and I can, I can even tell you why I love comedians. Well, number one, because they're very smart and I love the way they connect the dots. But number two, because as someone who has spent a greater part of her career in television, where you need hundreds of people to make something happen, there's something very magical for me to see someone get up and in, just out of their brain and their connecting the dots, come out with a body of work. I just find that really magical. Um, but not something that I felt comfortable doing as an introvert. And when I went back to school, I had a professor who was 80 years old, who went back to school at 50. What? And got, so after raising five children, she went back to school, realized she was a lesbian, left her husband, and then went back to school and became the foremost expert on Freud in 10 years. Got a doctorate in Freud, realized no one had really studied Freud has written a body of work. So from 50 to 60, got a doctorate and wrote six books on Freud and is now the expert in the world on Freud. So from 60 to 80, has traveled the world teaching Freud. And when I heard her speak and teach, I thought, I have never seen another woman so authentic, so honest, so funny, yet deep, yet and I'm like, that's who I want to be. At 80, she, she, she felt like she was 40. She was so honest. And I go, I can do that. And I realized maybe I'm not a comedian, but I can do that. I can st- tell stories and give lessons and give classes and make people, I can do that. And, you know, the last two years I've spoken, I mean, it, she, she completely took away my fear of doing it for someone who's an introvert. You know, I've spoken in rooms of 10,000 people, 5,000 people, 20 people, people, men, women, uh, rich people, poor people, Muslims, Christians, Chinese. I mean, and and it, sometimes you have to see it to be it. And sometimes you just have to really go for it and realize that it's never too late and it's possible and that it is really everything you ever wanted. You know, I'm wondering about the passage of your life where you're the head honcho of a big network. And I hated that period of my life. Wow. You know what? I think that's that's another thing that we all have to talk about. I think I say in the book, sometimes when you win, you lose, and sometimes when you lose, you win. I think that the period that of my was life everything that I ever probably, wanted. Yeah. Well, how could that go wrong? Well, but that's okay. I think You know, I started out as employee one of something and I ended up running that thing that I was employee one. I think that was my manifest destiny. I think that it was, it was, you know, the right thing to have happen because I was this young girl that worked my way up step by step by step and I reached the top and good for me that I did it and good for my, my, by the way, that career move is what gave me the money that allowed me to invest all my money in real estate, that allowed me to have all the choices I have now. But in the end, corporate life was not for me. I think that what I realized is that I'm a disruptor. I'm someone that has my own mind. I'm someone that was built to be self-made. And had I not done that, I wouldn't know that. But I was really built 
And that's why I can I can self I can teach this book to anyone. I'm glad I did that because I think I don't want to discourage people from working in corporate America. I think there's a lot to be learned. They do have a lot of secret sauces. Uh, they do have a lot of things that you need to learn first in order to then be self-made. And I also think for a lot of people, you can be in corporate America and start a side hustle. But what I think is for me the important thing that I teach people is. You have to think like an owner, whether you work for yourself or others. You have to have a part of your life that you own, whether it's investing in another business, whether it's investing in real estate or in stock. You have to keep a part of you that's yours, not give it away to a company, a government, a mate. Something has to be yours. And I did always keep something outside of that company. And... When I finally got to the top of the pyramid, I did it and I'm glad I did it. You know, the other thing I think people have to hear is my favorite word in the English language is completion. You know, we talked about this early on. A lot of people begin things and never finish things. There's something really, you know, we talked about this with friends of ours, right? I think there's something very powerful about beginning something and completing it. It's okay to complete it and then go, I don't want it. But it's easy to say, I don't want it when you've never done it. <laughs> okay. I, let's yeah. say you start and you go, I want to be a scuba diver. And you start taking scuba. You go, oh, I hate it already, which a lot of kids do this. Well, how do you know you hate it? Finish. It's okay to finish and then say, you know, this isn't for me, but I did it. Okay. I don't ever, you know, like people get shocked that I went back to school and I started and I finished a six-year doctorate in four years. I've told myself, if I could finish this, if I could finish this six-year program in four, I had to trick myself because it was hard in middle age to go back to school. I will give myself a, a trip around the world, which I did. But I did it. And it was hard. It was hard to go back to school and have a professor say, you write like a rapper. Here's Drunk and White. Learn to write all over oh, again. Oh, man. and Write is great. Book. Because I was yeah. writing little pithy marketing things like I was used to writing for TV. And oh. I had to learn to write, and I had to write 97 papers, a master's thesis, and a, and a dissertation. And now I had to, I just was told that the, the laws of my degree got changed, and I have to, I had to, I have to write an extra case study for my dissertation. And I'm doing it. And I have to take an extra two classes to do it. Tough. There's something beautiful about discipline, order, and completion. It, it, wires your brain right. It makes you feel, you know, people talk a lot about self-esteem and empowerment. You know what self-esteem is? Brick by brick, step by step, completing things. It's an inside trophy. It's not outside. Who cares if you won an Oscar? Who cares if you won a New York Times? You know, a lot of the things that people give you on the outside world are fixed. There are things that a lot of people, you know, you win an Oscar, a lot of people have to like, you know, lobby and market for you to win an Oscar. Right. A lot of people have to sell books on your behalf to get you a New York Times bestseller. It sounds great. It's great on your resume. But deep inside, you know, you didn't do it alone. A lot of people had to get involved. When you write papers yourself, not cheat, mm -hmm. you write them yourself. When you do things yourself, when you complete things yourself, the trophies inside of you. You don't have to go brag. Nobody has to tell you you're great. You know you're great. 
Wow. I, it, now that you're saying that, I mean, that's literally been my whole life, just that's sitting right. in, in front of a typewriter or a computer, and it's just me and those keys. So who cares what other people, and that's why life is so complex and, and confusing, because we value people based on those outside trophies that really are kind of BS. You know, it's so funny because doing the New York Times bestseller, you know, my book hit the New York Times bestseller, which by the way, only eight multicultural women in history have hit the New York Times bestseller, which is shocking. Congrats. But it's BS because there's a system to hitting the New York Times bestseller. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. And it, yes. So I have the wherewithal to know how to sell books and go on tour and get the, the kind of support I needed to do that. Not everyone does that. Does that mean somebody else's book is less important than mine? No. But somehow we internalize that as like, oh, well, my book isn't as good as your book. That's a lie. I want people to hear that that's a lie. We have systems out there that if you, if you have the, if you're somebody that runs a very big corporation and can have a zillion people buy books, then you, you sound like you're smarter than everybody else. It's not true. And that does not give you self-esteem because you know you have, yeah, great. You're smart in the sense that you beat the system. Self-esteem is different. It's an internal job and only can be really accomplished by doing the work and not, not hacking the system, not taking shortcuts, actually completing the work yourself. It sounds to me like when you, your love of completion and you're, you're talking about that love of completion, it almost allows you to go on to the next stage because once you completed something, okay, done that. I was head of the company, okay, time to move on. Now, what do I wanna do? I wanna help people. Well, and that's why you can't listen to other people that say, like a lot of people have criticized me a lot for saying, well, what is it? You've done all these different things. Well, well, I don't care what you think. That's your, you know, like, because why? Are we supposed to live a linear path according to whom? Like maybe in a world where you're going to live to be 100, why should you keep doing the same thing forever? Maybe, is that not like low level thinking? Like maybe you should complete something and then move on to the next level. Should you be stagnated in the same thing? Or should you be challenging yourself? to a whole other level of thinking of whatever. And I think for me that, and I have to give Brian credit for that because I think when, here's what happened to me exactly and why I went back to school in 2008, I was Tyler Perry. I had, I had completed running a network. I did what everybody does, which is you go and become a producer because you make more, I want people to hear you make more money producing than you do running a network in most cases, not in all cases. And I was producing a lot of TV shows. I was asked to be on Celebrity Apprentice with Donald Trump, which really did change my whole life because I was a hidden figure, like so many of us behind the scenes. And being on Celebrity Apprentice, I was asked to go speak at every Fortune 500 because the multicultural women were like, who is this woman that is not an actress and she's on this show? And I realized how much multicultural women value a serious woman versus an actress someone who they could aspire to be. And that was the beginning of this, you know, the idea of this book. And the economy crashes. And when the economy crashes, a lot of my shows were put on hold. And Brian, my mate, said to me, why don't you just go do something else? And I go, oh my God, because again, my immigrant thing was like, oh no, I got, and he's like, you already have enough money. And I go, really? 
And he's like, yeah, you, you don't have to work. I go, really? You bought buildings and your buildings are rented and you're a landlord. You have enough money. You're making money while you sleep. You've got your own chips. And he goes, what would you do? What would you do if you knew you were going to die in a year? Great advice, Brian. And I said, I'd go to school. I'd go back to school and I'd study psychology, something I've always wanted to study. And he goes, go do it. He goes, do it for a year. And if you don't like it, but he he knows better because I don't do things for a year. Right. You're going to complete it. I complete. Right. So I, I, but I told myself, I'll go for a year. Again, you know, it's my, sometimes I, and then I got there and I was like, I love this because I fall in love with things. And, and then, and then so I where saw. where did you go? I went to Pacific and Santa Barbara where I'm going to go be the commencement speaker Saturday. And I went and I saw that they had a six year program in four. And I go, so if you did it year round. And so then I said, I'm going to do this for four years. And then I'm going to give myself a trip around the world. And then I committed. And then I did it. And it flew by. That's the other thing people don't realize. Like time is, you think, oh my God, four years. It really was no big deal. It really was, and it was the and it was the greatest thing and the greatest gift I gave myself. Not even because of the school thing, because I had a big aha in those four years. What was that? That what I didn't love about what I was doing is that we in the entertainment industry, you work on something. And let's say you're working on a show and you love the journey of the show. You love the people you're working with. It's a magical experience. And the show is successful, but not that successful, let's say. And you get told, okay, move on, next. Wasn't that successful? And it's kind of like the entire experience gets thrown out because it's a, it's a business that's very goal-oriented yeah, versus done. journey. Yeah. By the same token, I've worked on shows with horrible people horrible actors that are like <laughs> drug addicts and the show's a hit and then you get then you get told make 10 more of these oh, no. and i realize as a latina i'm journey oriented i'm relational i need to be doing something that is rich in every way and it is possible to make money be in a good journey do something that is rich in every way and i realized i had to search for that and i found it how did you come up with the idea for Adelante? Well, it was such, it was so interesting. Uh, and it's so funny because I just, I, I just had to really write this down to yesterday because I'm writing my, my, my speech for Pacifica for my commencement. At the halfway mark of school, I had like almost like a nervous breakdown. I go, why did I do this? You know, like, oh my God, why am I doing this? I almost had like a panic attack. And out of nowhere, Mike Darnell, who was a friend who worked at Fox, his cousin had gone to Pacifica and in the same doctoral program that I was in. And she had graduated two years ahead of me. And she came to town and she called me out of the blue and she goes, hey, Mike told me that you're in the same program I was in. Can we have dinner? I mean, just incredible timing. And we had dinner and I said, I'm having a panic attack. Why am I doing this? I have no idea why I'm doing this. And she said, you're in process. And when you finish, all the dots are going to connect and you're going to know why you're in school and this is all going to bring you to your next place in life. And it's funny because I called her yesterday and I said, I'm remembering you because you told me exactly what I needed to hear and you were right. At that halfway mark, I had to write my dissertation 
Wow, so you're really understanding the depth of why you're there while you're doing that. Right, and what I decided, at the same time that she called me, I went to a meeting at Coca-Cola. And at that meeting, they said to me, Latinas are the number one emerging market in the world. They are going to own the U.S. economy for the next hundred years. They are, they are the most powerful people in the country, and they don't know it. And if they were given the skills in entrepreneurship, because they are all running to entrepreneurship because their husbands and fathers have lost their jobs, if they knew what you know in one generation, it would change the economics of Latinos. And following them, African-American, Asian, and, and Middle Eastern women, and Indian women. And at the same time that I heard that, I'm in school reading the medical books where they say very low-level information that are coming from the federal government that are pathologizing Latino and multicultural women. Like They, they are all the lowest money makers because... The, stat, the census was taking the numbers and just taking, this is what Latinos make, dividing it by 50 million people. The, the corporations were taking the money and saying, well, yeah, people, there's 50 million people, but a million of them are overperforming white women. So they were going deeper with the numbers because they're looking for customers, right? Got it. So the corporations were doing better numbers than, than the, the government. Than, than the government. And so they, they're not showing multicultural women as the answer to the economy. And yet Coke, Walmart, McDonald's, all these other people are like, oh my God, these multicultural women, we have to go after them. So I said, I'm going to write my dissertation on multicultural women and entrepreneurship as the answer to the U.S. economy. And changing the psychology of these women as the new leaders in the country. So I spent two years writing this paper. When I finished writing the paper in 2012, I go to Coke. I said, I need to use your, your research, which those people never give out their research. And I went to Walmart, I went to all these people, I need your research. No one's gonna see it, it's in an academic paper. And the president of Coke said, oh my God, Nellie, you've written your next business. And when he said it, I went, he's right. And I even wrote, these women need to go adelante. And I even wrote the word adelante. Let's go. Now. I go, these women are it. And so he said, but what you need to do in order to prove this, this is a hypothesis. So think about how Coke and these companies think, oh, we're going to, here's smart water. Great. We think this is going to hit. We need to go test it. So he goes, you've now written a hypothesis, like think of like a, I don't know, any company, it's like right? like a scientific A scientific analysis, right? 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 And he's like, go prove it. Yeah. Now collect data. So I went, so this book, even though I, I, I took out the data, I mean, I have all the data that backs this and we actually wrote a report called The Self-Made Economy. But this book is my dissertation meets my data three years on the road written in a way that's accessible to most people. Wow. So this is an ac like a, an academic paper that I, what took the, the longest. It, it doesn't, it doesn't read, it read that, way that way at all. Because 
what I did is I took, I wrote an academic paper and then my friend who's a New York Times editor had me read it out loud and then he edited out all of the academic part and put it in my voice. That's wild. That's how we did it. Yeah, anybody reading it would think you're talking to them. But I have a separate version and I have a separate even report that we've actually, I presented it at South by Southwest and in other places that's just the report with the numbers that shows you why this is true. So you went from writing marketing copy to writing scholarly copy back to copy that- Well, and that's why I know that the other thing is, Cal, when I've seen everything happen with Me Too and Time's Up, the other thing that is beautiful for me, going back to the step-by-step is I'm very grounded in that this is what's gonna hit next. And I'm not saying this book, I'm saying economic empowerment for women is what's gonna hit next. Because I have data that shows me that there is no me too or time's up if women have their own money. So I know that the execution of me too and time's up is this. And so this is what's, this is slower because it's not as scandalous or crazy but this is the execution that has to happen next, and it will. I am going to work on this for the rest of my life, and it, maybe it'll happen in my lifetime, or maybe it'll happen beyond, but this economic empowerment of women, and why women? Not because it's not gonna happen to men, because women are the ones that are raising the children, and this has to happen in families, where there is the light bulb has to go on, and the data shows that this has already happened, That these multicultural women by force have to do this. And so it's very important for me. That's why I have gone to so many cities around the country. That's why I need to create a center because um, this is grounded in academic work. It's not, I just didn't pull it out of nowhere. It's so interesting reading it. Obviously there were a lot of statistics, but I didn't have that sense no, of where it came because, from. Because it also connected the dots. Of, if you read the first part, that's where the academic part really is. But I pulled out, because and, and, and smartly so, the publisher wanted me to take out the academia part of it. The second part is my psychology degree. It's the how. And the last part is where. Where do you go get, where is right. all this stuff? And then my website is the deep work. I mean, that's where I break it down for you. And I'm blessed that I've also, um, again, I, I really feel blessed because of my background. If I didn't have a TV background, I wouldn't have all the sponsors I have that have left me alone that allow me to do all this content for free. I mean, you can go on my website and learn every single thing, level one, level two, level three, for all free. All the steps. Um, and that I love doing it. And you so, know, I'm in the middle of doing um, a deal with Santa Monica Community College. We are going to transform community colleges in America and teach kids how to become self-made, whether you're a plumber, whether you're a doctor. Level one, what are you supposed to do? Step by step by step. This idea of self-made as that everyone needs to know. And, and this just as a circle back to your childhood listening to your mom and dad talk about how are we going to get the money to pay for Nellie's school, you, you had to figure out all those steps mm -hmm. and you climbed them all. 
It's, and that I feel comfortable teaching them all. And right. that I know that people are embarrassed to ask. That's a huge thing. People have the questions, but they won't let them come out because it might make them look bad. I think there's a Chinese proverb that says something like, ask a question and you're a fool for five minutes. Don't ask the question and you're a fool for a lifetime. And just enabling people to ask and find out how. And that there is no bad question and that it's really important to get every little step right. Um, so it's okay to go back to zero. You know nothing. It's better to say, I know nothing. Let's keep, and you know, that's why when I do webinars, at the end of every webinar, I go, okay, let's go over every single thing again. Um, because I think we have forgotten to do that. So I'm going to leave you with one last question. Okay. You've got many, many, many years to live. Hopefully. If not, it's all in writing and in video. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're going to be around. Mm -hmm. What would you like to see happen before you do pass on? Based on all the work that you're putting into this movement. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing I've learned about life. I think my favorite book, not my favorite movie, but my favorite book is Cloud Atlas. Never read it. Okay. So Cloud Atlas is a series of vignettes in history where, and the movie is, it's not that it's bad, but it, it's, the book is better. And it's about really how life, it's what we're seeing happening in the world today. The, the life does not, the universe does not operate in a linear path where okay, we now have a black president, the floodgates have opened, everything is going forward. No, the world goes forward and then it goes backwards and then it goes forward and then it goes backwards. Um, and I think that you realize, I think when you're younger, you think I'm gonna change the world and everything is gonna change. And you realize that the world happens in very small, like, you know, a hundred years is a blip. You know, I'm Cuban American and I thought Cuba would be open by now, and we saw that Cuba opened, and then now it's going backwards again. Oh, the pendulum swings. The yeah. pendulum swings yeah. back and forth. So I don't, I don't want to give myself the this. I think I think before I die, this is going to happen or that's going to happen because maybe nothing's going to happen. What I want to do is just I want to be part of moving the needle forward in terms of information, and really I want to see multicultural people and women particularly because they are the leaders of families in this country get more information and feel more empowered and feel like, you know, the same way that we're seeing, look, I don't believe in the Prince Charming thing, but I love that Meghan Markle is there because a black woman, like breaking the boundaries of the, of the, of the whole thing of the British monarchy is a big deal. I love things that break things. I love seeing this book and that I have Susie Orman because I, the mo most important thing, even if pe women don't even read this book, to see a Latina talking about money and power is a game changer. So I want to see this move forward and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep doing it. So th this is all just you climbing steps. I'm climbing you steps. You are climbing steps. And I'm not stopping. And, and what I'm going to tell you, I'll tell you what my North Star is. When I called Susie Orman, you know, I wrote Susie Orman an email. I barely knew her. I'd met her a couple times. I didn't know her. And I wrote her an email. And I want women to hear that 
even though I know a lot of people, I get afraid every time I write someone an email and ask them to do something. And I was like, you know, that, that negative thing in my head, like, who do you think you are? La Susie doesn't even know you, blah, 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 blah. But I, <laughs> what I tell myself, because is even when I'm afraid to do something, I do it anyway, do it anyway, do it anyway, do it anyway. The worst thing that could happen is she doesn't answer. And a lot of times I send emails and they don't answer, but I sent it. And Susie emailed me back and she said, yes, I will write the forward to your book. And two months after the book came out, I called her and I said, Susie, thank you so much. It really, because it means a lot to have Susie Orman, who is the, who I used to read and who I thought was the woman writing economic books for women that I read. And I said, Susie, what can I do for you? Can I help you with multicultural women? Can I do whatever, what can I do for you? And she said, Nellie, I am complete. I have everything I need. I want to help you more. And I realized I had never heard another woman say that in my entire life, ever. I, I don't think I had ever felt complete. And I thought, that's what I want. I want to feel so complete that I have it to give to other women. And that's what I will work the rest of my days. And even if I don't feel complete, I'm going to act as if I feel complete. <laughs> but, and that's, and, and when, when I do events with women, I say, I am going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say, I, I, first of all, I, I talk about Susie a lot and I say, I'm going to say that even if I don't 100% feel it, because I know that when you act as if, you become it. And so that is my North Star, to feel like Susie Orman and give back to women. And that's what I say, what I feel, and what I, what I, that's my North Star. And however that, I, however I do that is how I do it. You know something? I think for right now, this podcast is complete, but I would love to talk to you some more because this was so enlightening to me. And I, I, you know, I, leave, I leave here with a lot of new things in my pocket. I'm gonna take these classes and I'm gonna follow you step by step to see where it takes me. And I hope everybody comes along with me. Oh, I love, by the way, you're so much of a grower and a thinker. And I think to myself, I wanna get into your brain because you've been in the brain of so many people and I also want to hear what you've extrapolated because, you know, I think so many of us have been around such magical people that if we, and I tell people this, if you just cut and paste from different people, not no one person is perfect, but if we take the best of and take from different things from different people, we really can have magical things in our minds. I'm going to start cutting and pasting pretty soon. And then I'm going to show up here for your podcast. That's what I want. <laughs> Promise. <laughs> thank, thank you so much. No, thank you. That about wraps it up. Time for a little gratitude. I want to say thank you, Anthony Bourdain, for all the joy you brought us over the years. I want to say thank you, Tim Ferriss for encouraging me to start this podcast so I can pass these messages on. Thanks to all my listeners for coming along on the journey and sending photos of the cities and towns where you listen to big questions. Man, when these photos come in, always lifts my spirits. 
Thank you, Squarespace and ZipRecruiter, for getting behind this podcast. Squarespace will make you stand out on the internet in a whole new way. Check out calfussman.com and see why I'm so happy to use it. If you need a new website or domain name, go to squarespace.com, type in the offer code Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, and get a 10% discount. Squarespace. Use it and the whole world will see you in a new way. And ZipRecruiter. If you need to make a hire, go to ZipRecruiter.com backslash Fussman and get one on me. That's right. All you got to do, type in your job description and with a single click, you'll have qualified job candidates within 24 hours. The higher you make, maybe the life improvement you've been waiting for. ZipRecruiter. And I just want to send one last message out there for anyone who's feeling down. It's a quote from a woman named Barbara Kingsolver. It goes like this. The changes we dread most may contain our salvation. See you next week. Cheers.